there seems to be a rush at the door here <laughs> right at the time a lot of people coming <clears throat> Well, let's enjoy uh, a few minutes of sitting together, uh, sitting as yourself, um, sitting with the world.
to just simply sit with others in this way is such a a beautiful but deceptively simple way of witnessing and expressing this marvelous mystery of being alive. Sitting without some deep need to be other than who we are, even if that need exists, welcoming that as who we are. to sit silently and with some dignity and with others is a silent comment. This is me. I'm with you. Here we are. Alive together. woven together in ways we can't imagine. But the weaving on which our life depends. By just simply sitting. A very simple embodiment of saying, yes. To this life and all that it brings. The joys and heartaches. The inconceivable moments and the unspeakable moments. Silently and in stillness, expressing our willingness. And in some ways, an appreciation for it all. We say yes.
together we use our voices to to intone the uh, verse of the robe. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Well, uh, life continues to offer me gifts. Uh, as I've shared with you in the last several weeks. You know, and I, I do this. Um, it, it's a way that to, to let us know that actually the Dharma is being taught to us all, all the time from everywhere around us. Uh, Dogen says it in ways that sound strange when he says it's rocks, trees, walls, tiles, you know, grasses. You know, these things are expressing the Dharma. It's like, what? Well, anyway, bringing it a little closer, life continues to offer me gifts. And sometimes, as you know, it's uh, you know, a new poem or some personal message, maybe a beautiful image um, that someone sends me or a book recommendation. And sometimes it's an unexpected moment in, in nature, but, but it keeps reminding me that life my life, your life, our life is a gift. Sometimes it's welcomed and sometimes it's not, but... And sometimes really specific offerings are made. It's, it's kind of amazing. Um, and maybe I see it and maybe I notice it. Uh, sometimes I pick it up and receive it as an offering, but sometimes I'm not so ready to receive. But Hopefully, my practice keeps me curious enough to discover uh, the gifts that are given and how they might be used uh, for the benefit of others, too. <clears throat> Lately, <clears throat> um, I've had some new surprises which are arrived. Um, and I want to talk about two of these. Uh, and how they come together, and it really shocked me in surprising ways. One is an email, which I'll read to you, it's very short, from uh, one of you. Uh, I see Sarah Gertner's on, online. And one of them is a book recommendation that someone made for me. I, I looked online and I saw that I purchased it in April. And it's been, uh, do some of you have the stacks by your bed? You know, 
<laughs> it's been in there and, and this week I just happened to decide it was time to take a look at it right after I'd received the email from Sarah and then um, I was grateful that I had something to talk to you about because it helped me help me do that. Here's what Sarah wrote. I'm having these realizations that each of us is a part of the same body. We're just holding different parts of the body. Cells working together perhaps and and we're trying to come together so something new can evolve because that's just what it does. And the more we can love each other, the clearer our parts become. And that's when we've stepped through all the gates. So I'll read it again. It's, it's, it's lovely, isn't it? There's so many things in it. I'm having these realizations that each of us is a part in the, in the same body. It's, I thought it was interesting. She wrote, in the same body, not of the same body. Each of us is a part in the same body. We're just holding different parts of the body. We're manifesting as these individuals, what looks like individuals. Cells working together, perhaps, and, and we're trying to come together. It sounds like she's touching on that unification principle that something is wanting to happen. And so something new can evolve, she wrote, because that's just what it does. That's what life does. And the more we can love each other, the clearer our parts become. And that's when we have stepped through all the gates. So I sat with this. I thought it was quite beautiful. And there's so many, many things in it. And then I decided uh, when I had... Uh, a rare moment to to sit down that I would um, I would pick up one of the books on my um, my stack and I'm not necessarily recommending that you read the book but I'll show you uh, what it is uh, it's called um, how do we live someone had recommended it to me this is the first English translation and it's a classic Japanese um, novel is written in, uh, or published in 1937 uh, before World War II by Genzaburo Yoshino. And it's become this classic for young readers. It's, it's for uh, kids. Um, and the, just so you know, the novel is narrated in two basic voices. The first is the, the main character and his, um, his nickname is Copper. And it comes from, I won't go into this too much, but from Copernicus. His uncle calls him Copper. He's 15 years old. He's an adolescent. And his father's died. And he's having to confront these kind of inevitable and enormous changes that come when things like that happen. And there are friendships, some special friends, and there are betrayals. And, and in between the episodes that you read of the story of this young boy, and like I said, it's written for, for young young audience. You read um, Copper's uncle's journals, and he's writing to the young boy in his journals, sharing knowledge and advice and things like that about these big questions that Copper's been encountering. So we follow him 
as he, uh, you know, like most of us, if we have at least a little something and we're adolescents, learn something about friendship and kindness and unkindness and thankfulness and acceptance, um, how damaging bullying can be, cowardice, discrimination, all those things show up. And there's a, a side note to this. Um, some of you probably are aware of the wonderful uh, animated movies by uh, uh, Hayao uh, Miyazaki, um, like Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro. Some of you know that movie. So he's, he's quite old now. And the thought that maybe he wasn't gonna make any more movies. One last movie. Uh, it's called The Boy and the Heron, and it's not available here yet. It was just released in Japan in July of this year. Um, so we have Sarah's beautiful reflection on what's unfolding in her, and now it's story time. Uh, hopefully not a bedtime story uh, um, from how, how Do You Live? So I'm going to read... I'm going to remind you by reading Sarah first. She said, I'm having these realizations that each of us is a part in the same body. We're just holding different parts of the body. Cells working together, perhaps, and we're trying to come together so something new can evolve because that's just what it does. And the more we can love each other, the clearer our parts become. And that's when we step through all the gates. Uh, so now a bit of the story. I was contemplating that. I pick up the book. In the first chapter, uh, Copper, the boy and his uncle, are in the center of Tokyo, standing on the roof of a large department store building in the Ginza district. Uh, any of you have ever been there, you know what that's like. It's massive and busy. <clears throat> and Copper sees all the people down below from this high place. And they're small and busy moving all around. And, and previously, he and his uncle, he realized, had been down on the street where he's now seeing the people. And they had been looking up, and now they're looking down. And maybe one of those people down there was now looking up at them. And he could see windows in the other buildings in this big, urban, uh, dense area. And he realized, oh, there are people behind those windows and they're probably looking at me and I'm looking over at them. And he thinks like all of us do, like the people down in the look like insects running around. And then he thinks, well, maybe it's like molecules, you know, coming together to form something. So anyway, as he does this, he's feeling this big shift in perspective regarding his surroundings and also himself. And in the general narrator in the book, not Copper or his uncle. This shows up in the, in the very first chapter, which is titled, A Strange Experience. Copper had an odd feeling. The watching self, the self being watched, and furthermore, the self becoming conscious of all of this, the observing itself by itself from afar, all those various selves overlapping in the heart. And suddenly he began to feel dizzy. Such a beautiful expression of 
what we sometimes feel in deep retreat. And in this way is only kind of a, you know, an earnest adolescent can do. He, he begins to wake up to something huge that he's never thought of before, something beyond him. It's as if he stepped through the first gate. Sarah talks about stepping through the gates uh, and met for the first time this witness. And that he's not just himself. He's not just oneself. And so his everyday sense of self begins to change and it's really disorienting to him. I remember some of you've had these experiences. I was with my cousins and we had a tent and we were outside at night. We got to sleep outside in the tent. It was really cool, you know, and we stick our heads out and we're looking up at the sky. And I think, you know, where, where does it end? And then you think, well, it can't end because what would be on the other side of that? And you have this weird thing for the first time of what infinite and you're, you kind of your head explodes you know so you get dizzy and he's having one of those kind of moments and he he woke up that night uh, copper did with questions that came out of that experience so the next day he tells his uncle and then we get the first peek inside the uncle's notebook privately the uncle writes to copper he says remember this well to work from up there, no, even to be able to make the climb. I love that in practice. To even to be able to make the climb, you must not lose the spirit that woke you in the middle of the night to follow your own questions wherever they lead. Remember what happened, what it took for you to shift your perspective. Remember your questions. Remember your own heart. It's like Rilke's advice about live the questions. Not to lose that certain spirit. Like Suzuki Roshi's beginner's mind. Never, never lose that beginner's mind. Keep it. So that sets the stage. And I, <clears throat> I move in just a little bit further. And now I have my computer glasses on and I'm reading so here's your first little bit of story now that you understand what's going on. <clears throat> and <clears throat> at this particular uh, segment in the story, Copper is realizing that every, he was he actually talking about powdered milk. He has a story about this and he says, where did that come from? And who is connected? You start realizing the interdependence of everything. He says, and then I thought about the darkened lamp, the clock, the desk, the tatami mats, and all the other things I could see from my bed, one after another. When I did, whichever I thought of, they were all the same as the powdered milk. But behind them were so many people that I couldn't count them, all connected, each one to the next. But they were all people I had never seen and didn't know. And I really didn't know what their faces were like. That night, I had a lot more thoughts. But I was getting tired and I fell asleep, so I forgot them. But the next day, I only remembered what I just told you. I think this is a discovery. Because even though I never thought about it at all until now, when I do think about it, I can understand that everything and everyone, everywhere, is like that. On the way to school, and even after I went to school, I tried to think about Everything I saw, no matter how random, but no matter what it was, they were all the same. 
And I could tell that all these countless people weren't just connected to me. In my classroom, I thought carefully in detail about my teacher's wool clothes and his shoes. And I discovered that they were definitely the same. My teacher's clothes started with Australian sheep. That's why, because of my idea, I feel that human particles are all connected like strings in a net with countless other people that they haven't met or even seen. And I'm about ever knowing it. And I just read Sarah's thing. That's why I decided to call this the net rule of human particle relations. I'm now applying this discovery to many things and verifying that is not wrong to practice. Today, I realized that the asphalt road is definitely like that. Also in math class, I figured out that my teacher's head and beard were connected to the barber. And because it took a while to figure out, I got a warning from the teacher. <laughs> but still, for the sake of discovery, I think sometimes you have to live with being scolded by the teacher. I want to write more, but mother says I have to go to sleep already. So I'll end my report here. Uncle, you're the first person to know about my discovery. I'm having these realizations that each of us is a part in the same body. We're just holding different parts of the body, cells working together. We're trying to come together. And when he shared this, we switched to the uncle's notebook and he writes, individual people, one by one, are all single molecules in this wide world. We gather together to create the world. And what's more, we are moved by the waves of the world and thereby brought to life. And just as you have discovered, talking to his nephew, it's come to the point where people who have never seen or met each other have become connected in unbreakable ways. Not a soul can escape these relationships. I was stunned as I was reading this. It's not new. It's our understanding of interdependence. And, but having read what Sarah had sent me and then opening the book immediately, it was amazing. Then there's some long segments in the book where we see what Copper and his friends do. Uh, they're being teenagers and doing all the stuff that they do at school and their families. And they're fighting for power and breaking up and connecting and all the stuff they do. And the uncle being a mentor through it all. Uh, not a soul can escape these relationships, you know. So more story. After a, a long part of the book, a, a copper is out working in the garden because it's spring and he's um, tending daffodils. <clears throat> and he, he found one bulb that was really deep. It wasn't like the other bulbs. And he said, what a patient little fellow. Copper's heart called out, thinking of the little plant silently working alone in the dark with nobody watching it until now. It was really deep in the ground. Copper felt something stirring in him. Already the strangely shaped plant had become a figure of some new consequence to him. 
he dug and eventually the root came into view. Copper could see immediately it was a daffodil bulb. What he couldn't figure out is how a daffodil bulb, bulb had found its way into such a deep place. However, even after being buried so deep in the ground, this bulb hadn't died. I probably don't have to point out the metaphor <laughs> about these places in us, you know. And as long as it survived, it still felt the warmth of the sun, even with a heavy blanket of earth covering it, and sent out its shoot as spring drew near, tirelessly reaching up toward the bright surface. In Sarah's word, because that's what it does. Copper carefully lifted up the strange daffodil. At about a third of a meter long, it was pretty much the same height as its companions blooming here above ground, but to look at it, nobody would recognize it as a daffodil. The white stem part looked like nothing so much as a spring onion, only the very crown of the plant, where it was tinted a tiny bit green, resembled a daffodil. And then only if you knew that's what it was. Copper carried this funny daffodil over to its colleagues lined up shoulder to shoulder in the sun and planted it. We come and we bow on a long row of people facing a wall and sit down. He dug an extra deep hole and buried it so that the white part was underneath the ground as it had been before. The other daffodils stood there with their deep yellow flowers half open, spreading their bright green leaves gracefully into elegant forms, looking just as if they had been washed clean. Looking at the daffodil he had just planted, its head poking up slightly next to the others, Copper felt an irresistible surge of softness and love. That pale stem hidden in the earth, pushing itself up to be seen by Copper. That's it. It's because this one couldn't help but grow, even from so far down. And as he looked at that line, I will say it reminds me of sitting in the zendo facing out and seeing everyone sitting together. Copper thought about it one more time, the power filling this single bit of green, that need to grow, made this small, humble plant lift up its head proudly. But when you lifted your eyes to look around, that need to grow was right now, in this very moment, starting to move. It was in the maple, it was in the paper plant, in the encanthias, really in each and every plant in the yard. Copper forgot to wash the dirt from his hands and stood still in the warm sunlight. His chest swelled with a good feeling. The same need all those plants felt was stirring inside of him as well. Because that's what it does. And when the more we love each other, the clearer our parts become. You know, in that evening of this spring evening that's talked about in the book, he met with his uncle in his study. And it's the only section in the whole book where anything about Buddhism is mentioned explicitly. Uh, because they were looking at pictures of um, Buddha statues, iconography. And the, his uncle was saying, look, look at the faces and look at the images. You know, where did Buddhism start? Northern India. These look like people from India? No, there's a lot of people from Europe. And they began to tell the story about 
how Greek sculptural elements were actually used in Afghanistan and other places later to make these statues. And in the original days, there, there really weren't so many statuary. And that, that's a whole other story. But like the Gandharan uh, statues, which are so rare, and you see them in, in um, museums, are quite, quite beautiful. But they don't look um, like they're people from northern India. And so copper, his uncle said, after the long story, the Buddhist art we know doesn't arise from Buddhist ideas alone, nor is it produced by Greek sculptural techniques alone. It's something that was created by joining the things together. A swell of emotion rose within copper, and the feeling left him trembling. Born on the evening breeze, the scent of the clove flowers washed over him, and copper sank into silence for a while and gazed at the table lamp. The thing he had felt in the garden earlier that day with the daffodils, that thing that needed to grow at all costs, had moved through how many thousands of years of history getting bigger and bigger. It's a beautiful description of transmission and how the Dharma continues to teach itself through everything. So he's continuing through his gates of realization. And then one last little story. You doing okay listening to the story reading? Okay, here we go. <clears throat> it was a spring morning. He woke from a quiet, dreamless sleep. I thought that was interesting because Nasaradatta Maharaj said one time, that which does not express itself in deep dreamless sleep is not real. He woke from a quiet dreamless sleep. It was completely dark in the room. Everyone must have been sleeping still, but there wasn't a sound anywhere. Copper opened his eyes in the darkness and lay there for a while without moving. He had the peaceful feeling that comes after a deep, uninterrupted sleep. But what time was it? When he looked around, he could see a dim blur of light in the frosted glass of the window, seeping through the gap between the shutters. The night was giving way to dawn. Copper got out of bed and carefully slid open the window, trying hard not to wake his mother, who was sleeping downstairs. And outside, there was a heavy mist. The cool, damp air played lightly over Copper's face as it flowed into the room. The sun had not yet risen, and when he looked out the second-story window, the trees in the yard, the neighbor's roof, the faraway groves and telephone poles were all enveloped in mist. And in the faint light coming from nowhere in particular, everything seemed half asleep. Then briefly, from somewhere outside, Copper thought he heard the call of a nightingale. He strained his ears and waited, and after a while, there it was again. Another faint, faraway call. Copper couldn't see it, wherever it was. He could only hear its voice coming through the deep mist. It sounded really happy. It wasn't asking anyone to listen, but seemed happy just to sing, enjoying its own voice. Each time it called, Copper could almost see it, imagining the little figure listening intently to its own voice as it disappeared in the distance. Leaning on the windowsill, Copper stood for a while, and he too listened. 
Before long, Copper sat down at his desk and taking out his new notebook, started writing steadily with his fountain pen. Uncle, I've decided that from now on, I will write my impressions in this notebook the same way you wrote your notes, as if you were talking to me and wanted me to hear. I'm going to write this as if I'm talking to you. <clears throat> I went back and read your notes again. There were still parts that were confusing to me, <clears throat> but I didn't give up and I read them many times. What moved me the most naturally were my father's words. I'll never ever forget that my father's last wish for me was to be a great example of a human being. <clears throat> Maybe I can become a good person and create some good person for, for the world. And I think that if I can just do that, then I might become a person who can create even more than that. Starting to realize the Bodhisattva way. At this point, Copper stilled his hand to stop writing. From deep in the mist, there was a the sound of a train passing by. They were already starting to run that morning. Copper looked out the window, the sky in the distance already getting bright. Under the sky spread the streets of Tokyo. Millions of people would be getting up soon and beginning their day's work. He thought of his friends. The joy of having good friends came flooding back into Copper's chest. He turned back to his notes and continued to write. I think there has to come a time when everyone in the world treats each other, treats each other as if they were good friends. Since humanity has come so far, I think now we will definitely be able to make it to such a place. So I think I want to become a person who can help that happen. You see him taking the Bodhisattva vow. S suddenly, the surroundings brightened and copper looked up. Full daylight was streaming through the window. The sun had broken through the haze and begun to throw fresh light on the earth. Copper came to live his life by this thought. And so this long, long story, for now at least, comes to an end. And now I think I want to ask all of you a question. How will you live? Thanks for indulging the long reading. I hope the story was, was quite beautiful. And can I ask you to come forward, Sarah, for a moment? I took great liberties with your beautiful thing. What oh, you. Thank you. I've, I've never had anything speak to my heart so deeply. And... um. I want to, what's coming to my mind is one thing that um, I uh, experienced after I, I, I started moving into this space uh, because it's coming up. That's the only reason I'm sharing it is um, I've been kind of sleeping and opening and sleeping and opening and um 
I went out with my new energy, um, my electric vehicle, and uh, I was almost out of energy in the electric vehicle, which is significant to me because it's interesting in this space how energy gets siphoned down. And um, I was, I went to, um, I started to charge it and I went over to Subway to uh, waste some time and have a little bit of a sandwich. And I was looking over at this man who was with his dog. He was homeless. And I just started getting this deep, deep need to uh, connect with him because I'm in this space where um, I'm seeing the parts. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Uh, just and, like Hopper was suddenly realizing, oh, everything's connected here. Yeah, yeah. So I went over to him and I said, uh, what do you need? He had this wonderful dog. And of course, everyone who knows me knows this, knows how much I love dogs. And then he said, oh, just some meat to, um, I, got, I brought some rice at the Dollar Tree and he showed it to me. And so I went over and, and to, I was at the Walmart. That's where you charge these days. And I went over and I had the most delightful time picking out things for him and his dog. And then I got $40 and I went over and I gave it all to him. And his eyes were so clear, so beautiful and so radiant. And, and uh, he looked at me and he said, you're an angel. You're an angel. I gave him the $40 and he lit up like crazy. And I looked at him and I said, you're an angel. And that was just a beautiful connection. And um, I just am so deeply open to um, when I saw all these faces, some of them I know today, it, so thankful, so deeply thankful. That's the story I felt like I needed to share. And Thank you so much for this talk. Um, I, uh, I'm obviously deeply moved by it. And thank you so much for your dear, dear heart. Certainly. And thank you for sharing yours. It's uh, like Copper would share things with his uncle and his uncle would write to him. And, and now, you know, you shared something and I speak back to these. But, uh, you know, there at the end where Copper realized, well, you know, if I if I see things this way and sort of take this kind of vow, that's not what he said, but if I become this kind of person, maybe I can help other people. And maybe yes. think, well, maybe we can uh, be on the side of this thing that wants to come together. If we love each other enough, as you said, we get clearer and we can step through these gates. Yes, yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's call forward anything for anyone else that wants to be met, encouraged. For some reason, I, I have a um, kind of a longing in this space here um, to call on uh, some people for um, something. Ryan, there in Minneapolis, would you raise your hand? Do you mind? There he is. Surprise. 
Good afternoon. The reason I was, you came to mind as I was looking at the faces is, um, it's a very general question, but because of uh, your work, but also because of what you've done with your, um, the time in the military, you've been so many places and been in non-ordinary places with people that you might not otherwise meet. Mm. And what impact has that had on you? Um, the, the meeting or the, the meeting, right? The meeting of people in non-ordinary yeah. situations or in specific populations. You go, you go back and forth in a very conventional world as a psychologist and working in the, and then, then you're deployed someplace and you're in another world, but doing what you do. And then you're back again, sometimes in a foreign country, sometimes in this country, which feels foreign at times. And then, <laughs> but how, what's that like for you? I'm, there's probably an advantage in my role remaining somewhat the same um, across the two, being in a helping role. Um, and and I think a very different context. I think, I mean, being in a sort of a helping environment, like in a hospital here, versus being in a relatively inhospitable to emotions and the interior life in the military um, in particular. Um, and both trying to sort of hold that for myself, but also support the accessing of the interior world for other people in those places. Um, so, I mean, at part, sometimes it feels like, I mean, there's a little bit of translation effect of trying to be in these different um, spaces and be able to, to navigate while holding on to myself, um, but trying to continue to be of service in a different space that's you know, may require meeting it in a slightly different way. Well, that's what I was wondering about, how you hold self in these different places that can be challenging, because I know you well enough to know that you're incredibly tenderhearted, actually. And mm -hmm. so... It just came to mind to ask you about these things. Anything else, any of this stirred around for you? May not, but I was just curious. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I found it really tender that moment where you talked about the father or you read the line about the father wishing that he could be a good person and, um, just sort of this relational calling forward of, you know, one person, um, you know, sort of inviting these qualities from another person and the way that that's brought forward this really tender response, but also then this continuing presence of the uncle who, um, who seemingly was supporting that endeavor. Um, and it, it, it's interesting sort of thinking about like what you're even saying with being in like the military or military environments and how hard it is to hold on to like a tender place when it feels so um, uninvited and how meaningful it is to have someone like an uncle who's sort of coming alongside saying like, you know, continue to sort of tend to that tenderness um, within copper and invites that sort of calling back to the father's wish for him. Um, just sort of really appreciating that. Um, well, it's kind of relational. feel that as my job. And I know you feel it as your job sometimes mm -hmm. too. So it's like, remember. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
thanks for talking with me. Yeah, thank you for inviting me forward. Yeah, everybody's wondering if I'm going to call on you, right? It's a different thing to uh, to respond to the invitation uh, than to feel called from the inside. <clears throat> um, Kathy King, Trice. <laughs> now she laughs. Just raise your hand so they can find you. There you go. How did you know? <laughs> what did I know? Oh, I'm. Um, I've been struggling with uh, something that someone else said a couple days ago. That um, it was an irritation in her and um i've been sitting with that and i've been reading on self-care which has really uh, helped and as you were talking what i what i realized was uh, that we are all one and there is something that I can learn from that experience. And it's, um, it's like sitting in the zendo when something comes to you all of a sudden. And you think, oh, <laughs> or maybe waking up in the middle of the night. I don't know. Mm. But uh, that's what's been going on. So thank you. So you could feel a shift from the separation, mm -hmm. of the irritation to um, the irritation is still irritating, but a non-separation. Yes, it's not quite there, but <laughs> but it's going problem. in that direction. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm. This is a personal curiosity. Um, is there anything particularly you've carried from your practice time in Ireland? From my practice time? Oh, yes. Yes, there was, exactly. I had two retreats almost back to back. And one was not a Zen retreat where this happened. And I thought, what is the difference? What? What is this? And I realized the care that I was shown in Ireland and how that draw drew me to people. And the difference in um, being in groups where that care is not demonstrated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what's similar? That's what's different. Uh, what is similar is that I, uh, I actually stepped out during that time, not just because of this, but there were many people I didn't know, and I'm, I, um, 
made an attempt to, or I did, uh, I sat with different people during the meal each time. Mm. And that really connected me more. So I, I was taking care of myself even before I realized that. Yeah, like like Sarah meeting the person with the dog and, oh, I think I'll go sit with this person. I think I'll go sit with this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for your willingness to come forward then. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about you, Leslie. You were? I was. You were one of the people I was looking at. It's like, hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, Sarah's story really touched me because uh, of your, um, talking to Sarah now, of your um, encounter with the the man that you were kind to. I'm finishing a novel right now about the flip side of that, about the guy who has spent, the main character has spent like 10 years um, after a fall of bitterness and self-pity and blame and anger and all that. Um, And he's fallen about as low as you can fall. And then someone is kind to him. And for the first time, probably in his life, he was able to take that in. And it was the beginning of his transformation. It was like that awakening and Um, He began to experience gratitude. He began to experience connection. He began to see himself differently and uh, as a person of value. And so it was just a reminder to me to, you know, I mean, it's one thing to be nice, but it's another thing to reach out and really, you know, make the effort. And you just don't know where, what kind of an impact that's going to have. And I suspect that Sarah's man had a, uh, that kind of moment. So, like Hopper's saying, well, maybe I can be a, a a good person, and maybe I can extend that. Maybe it'll help somebody. Yeah. There you are. Thank you. Yeah. Before we leave, I have one more piece from the story. Before we do our chant, we're going to do the four practice principles. This is from the uncle's notebook to Copper. There may be nothing more deep-rooted and stubborn than the human tendency to look and think of things with themselves at the center. People who are able to free themselves from this self-centered way of thinking are truly uncommon. Most people slip into a self-interested way of thinking become unable to understand the facts of the matter and end up seeing only that which betters their own circumstance. And that is why you absolutely must attend to the things you feel in your own heart. Like Sarah talking about if we can love each other or not, you must attend to the things you feel in your own heart, the things that move you deeply. That's what's most important now and always. Do not forget this and think carefully about what this means. So together we'll chant, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, 
each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Sarah, for our beautiful prompt today. Thank you all so much. And thank you, Flint. Nothing reminds me more than um, how interconnected and interdependent we are than seeing us all on this screen in gallery view, side by side, above, below, diagonally, all just holding each other up in this space so thank you all so much for creating it it's it's just it's just wonderful and if you feel moved to support Apamada, please do go to apamada.org forward slash contribute and there you'll find a place to offer dana to flint and to Apamada and any of the other facilities and programs that we offer thank you all so much and if you'd like to continue to meet for a further 30 minutes, please pop yourself into gallery view and I'll join you and others for a further 30 minutes. Thank you all so much. Thank you.